What we're going to be looking at today is last week I started um, a series on Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, so you could find that in your Bible. Um, and we'll be basically getting into the book now. Last week was a bit of an intro. We looked at um, Acts 19, Paul uh, planting the church in Ephesus. Hey, Deji, come and just grab a seat um, with us. Um, we'll be looking at, uh, yeah, Paul planted the church in Ephesus. We looked at that, and now we're going to get into um, the book proper. Um, Ephesians is a book, it's nicely split in half. The first three chapters are theology. Um, Paul's explaining the truths of God. Uh, the, the remaining three chapters are very much practice. So it's kind of, it begins with, this is what you should think. And then as a result of that, this is what you should act. And what we're getting into now is um, the whole sort of section on how we should think. What you think matters because what you think informs how you act. Theology informs practice. And so Paul will hit through these first few chapters big themes of God again and again and again to try and get it into the churches who are reading it to say actually what you believe about God and what you understand about God is vital because then it's going to inform how you act. And if you know the back end of Ephesians, it's got things about um, husbands and wives and children and how we should act in the world. But that comes out of what we actually believe about God. So as we go through these first few chapters, we're going to be hitting... um, uh, things in our mind. Are we thinking correctly about the ways of God? Are we thinking correctly about God, of our state before God, of our relationship with God, and all those things. So um, the check section we're going to look at today is um, verses 3 to 14. I'm going to begin it. I won't be able to get through all of it. And in the original kind of languages, when Paul wrote this, verses 3 to 14 was one sentence. If you actually begin, Ephesians, 3, Ephesians 1 is basically two sentences. That section and the next section is just one other sentence. He wrote long sentences back in those days. And the point of it is, if you, if you read it, it's almost like one outburst of praise, one explosion. Um, you could almost say he kind of got carried away, a bit of verbal diarrhea. He had a female moment. You know, all the heads came up there, you know, and he just, he went on. Something about God had captured his attention and he just, it just all came out. And, and he is desperate to communicate something about the wonder and the nature and the awesomeness of God. And the theme of this section, that sort of passage, is basically the, the, the revelation of the plan of God in salvation in Christ. It's kind of the overarching theme of history from eternity to eternity. What was God about? Some people call it like the high-level gospel. You know, there's creation, fall, reconciliation, com- consummation. It's the kind of the big gospel. But what God, he's, he, he created something and he wants to bring it back to himself. In the middle it fell and he's trying to reconcile the world to himself. And Paul has seen some of this and he is desperate to try and communicate it to the church in Ephesus and to us as well. Um, about this wonderful plan that God is the origin of everything, God is the ultimate source, but he's also the end of everything, and his plan is being worked out through the entire of creation, as we understand it, through time, to bring all people to himself. So it is something that he is incredibly excited about, and he 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 just launches into it. So I just want to read it to you. It's broken up in the English, but as you go through this, this is one man in one train of thought, trying to get it all down on parchment that could be sent out. So it says, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and in believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit, sorry, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. Wow, there's quite a lot in there. And, you know, it, it took, took me a while to get my head around that just reading that. But that's one sentence. And that's Paul just spilling out the wonderful uh, plan of salvation. And what we're going to do is we're just going to look at the first sort of few verses today and then I'll go on with the rest another time. Now, the beginning verse there is almost a summary verse of the whole section, that first thing. And I just want to look at three themes from that verse which basically flow through the entire uh, passage Um, And the first one is the initiative and activity of God in salvation. But it's God as Trinity um, as we we look at this. Um, We believe Orthodox Christianity stands and falls on the doctrine of the Trinity. It's what marks us different from every other so-called cult and sect that is an Orthodox Christianity. We believe there is one God. We believe he is three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. And we believe each person is fully and completely God. And Paul is bringing out that Trinitarian nature of God in the plan of salvation. For a start, it begins with God. He's praising God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It begins with him. Our salvation doesn't begin with us. It didn't begin with you when you made a confession of faith or put your hand up at a meeting or went to the front at a youth group or whatever it was. It didn't begin with you. It began with God. It began in the heart of God and his plan to bring a people for himself. And so we see God the Father there as the one who's working out this plan. If you go down to kind of verses 9 and 10, it says about this mystery he has now made known that he is going to bring um, this plan to unite all things in Christ. Things on heaven and on earth. So ultimately, one day, everything will be pulled back into God and it will be united with him. What was fractured by sin, what was broken at the fall, will one day be brought together. And we read that, you read the end of the book, um, Revelation 21, there's the city, isn't there? And God is at the centre and his people are in the city with him. And it's all been brought together. And so we see the God the Father's plan throughout salvation. We see God the Son. The sphere that God works in, if you will, is Christ. If you look, if you're trying to count up the references of uh, when it talks about him and he of, uh, referring to Christ and it talks about us being in Christ, there's something like 15 different ones where he keeps pointing it back to actually God, you had God the Father's plan, God the Father's initiative, but actually it's worked out in the person of Christ. 
And as believers, we have been brought into Christ. It's all fulfilled in Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and one day his return. Everything is worked out in Christ. So we see Christ whittled all the way through this passage. That It comes back to Jesus. It comes back to Jesus. And the plan of the Father was to do the, do the work through his Son. That was the heart of the Father. It would all come back to his Son that he would be the one who would rule and reign in splendour and we would look to Jesus and we'd be saved by the death and resurrection of Christ. And we also see God the Holy Spirit, not quite so obvious, but he is there as well. It talks about in the beginning, it talks about spiritual blessings. That word spiritual actually means um, of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. So we have him right at the beginning of the passage and then right at the end of verse 13, he is named as the Holy Spirit and it says we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And he he is our guarantee for what is to come. This inheritance we will one day receive in fullness. How do we know we've got it? It The Spirit is in you. That's how you're going to know. So we see God as Trinity working throughout the entire plan of salvation and throughout this passage. The second thing we see running through this passage is these spiritual blessings which are named there in verse 3. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Now, If you go through the passage, you'll actually see what some of these spiritual blessings are. He describes them there. We have things like uh, election, being chosen, predestined. We see adoption. We see a redemption and forgiveness. We see we have an inheritance um, to come. We are salvation and there is also the sealing of the Holy Spirit. So all those blessings which um, we will receive, they're sort of outlined through the passage. It's summed up at the beginning. You've received all these spiritual blessings. Isn't it wonderful? Then Paul goes on to actually start naming them to remind the people, this is what you've received in Christ. This is what you've received as your salvation. Sometimes we can boil what, what Christ did to us down in just that one word, salvation. It can be a very glib, very flippant thing. But actually the facets of salvation are incredible and there are so many of them, and we cannot exhaust them all. And Paul wants to get some of them down for, these, um, for the people in Ephesus to kind of understand. And it says we're blessed with spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms. There is a connection with us, with the ruling and reigning Christ, who is seated um, at the right hand of the Father. And because we've been blessed, sealed with the Holy Spirit, we have actually a connection with him. There is something about our salvation that connects us to heavenly places. I think elsewhere, I think it's in Ephesians, where it says we're almost, we're seated in heavenly places. And I don't know if you've ever read that and looked around and think, nope, I'm just in my front room. You know, but there's this, on a spiritual day, we have received something from God, those spiritual blessings that connect us um, with heaven, with the ruling and reigning Christ. And we are the ones who've received it. We have these things. Well, the poet Paul keeps talking about us and we throughout the passage as well. And he's saying these things are real and you are the receivers of them. You can take hold of these spiritual blessings. They're not abstract things, they're things for you. And the final thing we see through this passage that is an important one is actually how it begins. And that is, it's all to the praise of God. It begins, blessed be, some translations say praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And later, I think it's in verses 6, 12 and 14 I've written down, it talks about to his praise and his glory. It's all about Jesus. It's all about God. It all comes back to him. And although we have received spiritual blessings, it all comes back to God. He is the one that we should be praising. Um, the, the, The Christian message isn't about you. It's not about you and it's never about you. It's always about God. 
Yes, we are involved and yes, we, we get saved and, and we come into a relationship with God. But ultimately, the purpose of that is to bring us back to the praise of God. And we looked at it last week with the idolatry that was in Ephesus that Paul was preaching against in Acts 19 and they were fighting. And actually, an idolatry is just putting something else in the place of God. God should have priority, the number one thing in our life. And idolatry is just merely putting something else in his place. And it was rife in Ephesus and it was obvious there with Artemis and, and the temple and everything. But it's still rife today and it's still obvious today. It's just some of the things are a little bit kind of you have to look for them. But people put lots of things in the place of God. Their, their work, their, you know, their material goods, their family, you know, having a good time. All these things come in God's place and that's what they devote. That's what they sacrifice their time, energy and money for. And... And we need to be careful that it all comes back to God. Even when we preach the gospel message, I talk about the gospel at the high level, the gospel at the low level is just God, man, Christ, and what's your response? There is a God, man is sinful, Christ died for those sins. How are you going to respond? Even when we proclaim it on a very personal low level to individuals' life, hoping that they would respond and accept Christ, even that must always be turned back to actually, you're saved so you can worship God. You're saved so you can come into a right relationship with God and have the number one in your life being God and that person, that one being the right thing as number one and everything else must fall before him. He must sit on the throne of your life. Um, and so it's all about him. And it's all the way through this passage. And even as we look at other subjects, I want us to always remember, actually, it always comes back to God. It always comes back to us. It's not about you. Someone once told me that if you ever get asked a question in church, if you always answer God, you're right, kind of in a roundabout way. Or Jesus. You know, what's the answer? God. Because ultimately it all comes back to him anyway. And so actually you're always going to be right on some level. Um, because ultimately he is the answer for everything. And if you look at the end... Um, just to kind of emphasise this point, we see in Revelation uh, that the Apostle John, he has a vision and he sees uh, people, representatives from every tribe, nation and tongue and what are they doing? They're, they're before the throne worshipping the Lamb. And so even at the end, that's our goal, that's our purpose, that we will one day be worshipping the Lamb together um, with representatives from all the nations of the world. Um, and so it's all about him. It all comes back to him. We make a big emphasis here at the church. We're going to worship later and give our focus and our attention to him because he is worthy of it. But it, that's what it comes back to. So there's three themes there that run through the, uh, the passage. The initiative and activity of God as Trinity. There's the spiritual blessings we received and it's all about praising God um, so for his glory. Now just before we finish, a couple of things I want to look at are these spiritual blessings. If we go on, we're going to look at the next two or three verses. And as Paul has kind of outlined, this is where I'm going with this passage. These are the big kind of themes of what I'm doing. There's two particularly he pulls out. And the first two are election and adoption as we read the passage. So, what, so basically he's saying God's had this plan from eternity to eternity to unite everything in Christ... And as he goes to actually explain some of the, 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 the ways he's done this, his plan, the first two he chooses are election and adoption. So if we get, you know, blessed be the Father and God of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with Christ, uh, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Um, now, election, it's good that that comes first because that's chronologically first because in eternity past, God chose a people for himself. And you see it throughout the passage. It's, it comes up first here, but it talk, it talk about predestined in verse 5 and verse 11. It talks about um, 
uh, we were appointed, there was a plan um, that he was working this all out, this mystery for his good pleasure. It's something God had chosen. And God, before, before he created the world, before anything was put in place, he chose a people for himself. He said, before the foundation, he said, I choose a people who will come to me and be mine forever. And the, the, the importance of that fact, the kind of before the foundation of the world, it means, it means before we did anything. And so it cannot be based on anything we've done, good or bad. Our election, our choosing by God was not based on us. It wasn't based on your good performance. It wasn't based on the fact that you're nice and kind and you know, you're friendly to your neighbours and you work hard and all these good things we like to kind of put up there as high morals. It wasn't the fact that you come to church or you pray or even that your parents were Christians and they taught you well. The reason that you are here now is because God chose you before the foundation of the world and it wasn't based on your good efforts. It wasn't even based on your faith that you had because later on we look in Ephesians and actually it says that was a gift as well. I gave you that. God says. It's all based on him and it's a free act of God's love which if that doesn't make you secure in God, I don't know what else will. God chose you because he chose you and he loves you and he wanted to choose you and there's, there's nothing you can do to alter that. So there's nothing you can do now bad to affect that because he already knew what was going to happen and he's chosen you anyway. And so that is a wonderful truth and he chose us in Christ. It comes back to that Trinity. There's the plan of God the Father, but he, he chose you to be brought into his Son and you will be in Christ. And it says, because you're in Christ, you will be holy and blameless um, towards God. And the language Paul's used there is linking back to the Old Testament sacrifices um, of the lamb. They had to, when they sacrificed a lamb, it had to be a, a pure spotless lamb, they describe it. And basically it was ethically pure. There was no fault in it. And uh, so that they could sacrifice it. It wasn't, didn't have any defects. They would check it over. The lamb was kind of pure, it was young, and so he could be, that lamb could be sacrificed for the sins of the people. And basically, it's, we, are, we are the same. We have been chosen in Christ to be like that. We are holy and blameless before God. Because we're in Christ, and because Christ died for our sin, he rose, he broke the power of death, he ascended into heaven, and because we have accepted that by faith, We've sought forgiveness for our sins, put our faith and trust in him. We stand before God with that same holy, uh, ethical purity, if you will, holy and blameless. We bear the righteousness of Christ, the right standing that Jesus has before his Father in heaven as the Messiah, the Chosen One, perfect. We share, not because of our own actions, not because we've done anything, but we are, we are linked by faith with him, and that faith is the gift of God, so it's all to his praise and glory anyway, but actually we stand holy and blameless before a God in heaven in Christ, which is just wonderful, and we hadn't actually done anything for that. God chose that to happen, and he worked it out. He sent Jesus, he chose us, he worked it all out, and so we can do that. But it says at the end there, it says he, he did it in love. It was a loving action that God did. He was a loving father. It wasn't a mechanical kind of thing, I just do that. It was actually a desire of the heart and the love of God to choose a people for himself because it says in 1 John, God is love and he's all born out of love, his actions. A loving choice for his people. And we see this theme of God choosing peoples not based on their actions throughout the entire of scripture. We see, you know, with Abraham, he went to the pagan 
in Iraq, you know, and said, I will choose you, and you, through you, I'm going to, you know, bless the entire world. I can imagine Abraham like, what? Who? You know, me? And yet he got that, and then he chose his children. There was the line, and then he had the children of Israel. He picked them and said, I will pick you, not because you're more prosperous or better than any nation. In fact, the opposite. <laughs> you're not actually that significant, and you're in slavery. Uh, but I'm going to have you, and I will display my glory through you. He chose Moses, hiding away in the desert. You will lead my people. I will pick you. And then throughout that, he picked judges to lead the people. He picked kings to rule the people. He picked the prophets, Jeremiah. He even said to Jeremiah, I, will, I picked you when you were in the womb to be a prophet to the nations, Jeremiah 1. He said, I chose you. Jesus came, he chose 12 disciples who were a bunch of, you know, numpties sometimes, weren't they? You know, if you, if you actually, actually, you know, if they only had to apply for the job, I can't imagine many of them got it, would have got it, like us. You know, if you had to submit a CV to the Messiah, we should be your chosen 12. I can't imagine any of them actually getting an interview um, for that position. But yet Jesus' delight was to choose them to build his church upon. And it says at the end that kind of they would form the, the foundation for this city. Um, what their works had, they were chosen. And that carries on with us. He chose the church from all the nations to represent him. It's wonderful. So God chose him. God chose us. And that is an awesome truth. That is one of the spiritual blessings in Christ. Paul gets out. And we sit here today being chosen. Being chosen people. Doesn't Peter say that? You are a chosen people. No. Holy nation, Lord, please said, But it was you're chosen. God picked you um, for himself. And that is a wonderful truth that should secure us um, in God's love for us. The next thing he goes on to there, in love he predestined us, there's still that choosing there. For what? He chose us, but for what? For adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Again, that's that choosing language to the praise of his glorious grace which he has blessed us in the beloved. The reason he chose us was for adoption. God wanted children. God wanted sons and daughters. Now, it's very important to point out he didn't do this because he was lonely. Okay? He wasn't lonely. He didn't need us. He wasn't bored and thinking eternity is a really long time. I need something to occupy myself with it. No, God was perfect community in the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. C.S. Lewis calls it the dance. There was this perfect, eternal relationship of love within the Trinity, between the Father, Son, and Spirit, that was, was wonderful from eternity to eternity. But out of that heart of love, he created a people. It was an overflow, an expression of it, not because he was lonely. And again, that shows God's initiative, God's will, God's predestiny of people, saying, actually, I want to do this, I will choose this. And when he talks about adoption, He's talking about um, sons and daughters who weren't his by birth, if you will, being brought into the family. That's what we have. When we adopt children, that's our language. It's when children are brought into a family who aren't uh, biologically part of the family um, by sort of descent. A child is brought in and made part of the family. That's what adoption is. And so for us, we were outside um, that um, but God has chosen to bring us in and make us sons and daughters of him. And when you think about that, you know, there is already a son in the Trinity, but yet God's delight was to add to that, was to add others 
into that relationship, which is a wonderful thing. And you can imagine why Paul is so excited about this, that actually we have suddenly been kind of pulled in to this relationship that we were previously um, outside of. When you, you're adopted, you, you come into a privileged, significant position within the family. When you, you were outside, you had no rights, you had nothing, and suddenly when you come in, you, you take full rights of sonship. In, under Roman law, um, if someone was adopted into a family, they, didn't, they weren't the adopted son, they just became the son, and they inherited full rights. And depending on you know, kind of the age of the person you adopted, they could actually supersede natural children in terms of inheritance, because they, get the full, they, they literally become as sons. And it's, no, it's not a second-class child, it's actually you are part of the family. And I'm, I remember from my ancient history A-levels, you've got someone like Julius Caesar, um, who was um, big in ancient Rome. His heir was Octavian, who was actually his nephew. And Octavian became Emperor Augustus, who was, I think, the longest-serving Roman emperor. But actually, that was his nephew. But under Roman law, when he became his heir, he became the rights to everything. And so, but actually, he was actually kind of outside his direct line. But he got everything. And we, we have been brought into that. God describes Israel in the Old Testament as his firstborn son, as that child. And then we see it as we come into the New Testament, revealed in Christ, that we become brothers and sisters of Christ. In essence, we are brought into that family. God becomes our father which is the most staggering thing. Because if you read the Old Testament, the idea of God, Yahweh, as Father, in a personal, intimate sense, was, was a staggering thing for the Jewish mind. God was awesome, God was wonderful. He may have been Father of the nation as a, as a body, but having a personal Father was just something that would have been shocking to their mind. And so Jesus comes, starts talking about, about God as the Father, and even teach, the disciples say, teach me to pray. And what he says, well, that's how, we, that's how we start. Our Father, who are in heaven. He said, actually, no, it's now. It's a personal relationship. The corporate is still there, but actually you have a personal relationship with your Father in heaven on an individual sense. You can relate to your Father in heaven. Paul writes in um, it's Romans, it must be, he says, by the, the Spirit that's come upon us, which is in here, we've seen the Spirit. By that, we have been adopted as sons, the Spirit of sonship. So we cry what? Abba, Father. And Abba is this kind of intimate word um, for, for kind of daddy's a bit, not quite the right translation, but that kind of intimate papa relationship with God. And that's what we have. You have that relationship with Christ, which when you think about it, it kind of, it, it kind of gets your mind. God created all things and suddenly he is our Father. And if you ever watch children with their fathers, they just, they, they, they abuse the privilege, don't they? Because they know that they're children. My son, who I adore, just he does not care what I'm doing, um, but when he wants attention, he's there. He's pulling me. He, he's, now, he's got this new thing now where he grabs my finger and he just says, here, and then starts walking. And I think the idea is I follow him, because he's actually quite strong when he's got one finger. And it's here, here, Daddy, here, Daddy, and he will lead me around the house to where he is, and then, and then I will play with him with whatever he wants to do. And what I'm doing at the time is largely irrelevant to him. In fact, it's totally irrelevant to him. He doesn't care. But that's what he did, because here's, here's my son, I'm his dad, and he knows that I have a relationship with my father, so I can do that. He's even done it here when we had the kids in. He even come out, I'm preaching. I'm the leader of the church. I'm important. I am preaching to the assembled congregation the word of God. And it's all very kind of holy. And he, he just came up, Daddy! And, and I think he brought me something like a car. And that was it. I'm playing cards with my son. And he just 
didn't care. What, you know, he didn't care about you guys. You know, he cared about daddy and the fact that you're my daddy and, um, and I want to talk to, talk to him. And it's, we have that same sense of actually God is our father and we can relate to him. And, and that is what he wanted. And God desired that before the world began. That's not like something that we just think, oh, it's a new thing. No, but that has always been on the heart of God. He chose us before the world began to be adopted as children into his family. And he would be our loving father. That's what he wants for us. And it says at the end of that verse um, 6, they would all be to the praise of his glorious grace. It comes back to God. It's all about God and it brings in that grace, that unmerited favour. We did not deserve it. We have to get over that. You don't deserve it. I don't know if anyone's ever given you a gift that's kind of just been a staggeringly extravagant, generous gift and you feel that sense of, I don't deserve this. This is so much more than that. And sometimes in our Britishness, we just get over it. Someone's given you a gift because they love you and they want to. And God has given us the greatest gift in knowing him as Father and choosing us for his family. And it's something for us um, to praise him and give him glory about forever. Amen? Okay, let's... A um, little bit of homework and then we will finish. I'm aware... When we talk about God and Father, we always butt up against the same kind of uh, potential problem area, and that is that how we view our earthly fathers and our experience of our earthly fathers will always affect colour how we view our heavenly Father because they're so they're so linked in the imagery, and God chose to reveal Himself through the image of Father, and we have it. We've all had fathers. Some of us are fathers, and so it's always around us. And so how we, 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 we relate to our natural heavenly father will affect how we deal with our, uh, sorry, with our earthly father, will affect how we deal with our heavenly father. If your earthly father was absent, um, you didn't know them, they weren't around, you can actually think God is like that. Is he there? Is he really there? Is he kind of like my father wasn't around? Is God really around? Does he really hear my prayers? If your father was abusive, whether verbally, physically, emotionally, whatever, you can almost, you can see God like that and things happen. You immediately kind of go to that point of actually God's, God's, God has that element in him. He's abusing me and I should just kind of suck it up and take it, which actually is not what it is. You might have the overachieving dad who wants to push you and, and say, you will do, you will do, what your grades at school, exams, sports, whatever, push you, push you. And you, you, you take that onto yourself. I must achieve for God. I must do for God. Do, 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 do. And through doing, I gain acceptance to my Father in heaven, which actually isn't how God would see you. You might just have had a God who was, I mean, sorry, a dad who was there, but actually distant. Emotionally, physically distant. He was present in the home, but actually he wasn't, wasn't connecting with you and actually you can be aware of a God who's there but actually think again he's distant he's out of the way he doesn't want to get kind of um, involved with me personally which all those things are, are not on the heart of God God loves you he wants to be he wants to be close to you he wants to be intimate with you he wants to know you he, he knows you don't have to achieve anything the message the Christian message isn't do it's done <laughs> done in Christ you don't have to you don't have to try because I've you know it's already been achieved um, and so, by way of homework, I'd love you just to take some time out on your own at some point, maybe during this week, and actually just get before God, get before God the Holy Spirit and ask him to highlight areas in your life where you think maybe your, your father, your earthly father, has affected your relationship with your heavenly father. There might be nothing, let's not go on a... You know, let's not go on an issue hunt or something. But actually, what the point is, Paul, and I'm, I'm, I'm feeling here as a pastor, is actually is that we need to have a good relationship with our Father in heaven. 
and we need to, need to have dealt with things from our earthly father. And Paul starting this letter is hitting this, saying, you need to know this church. And before we get into all the, the, the practical doing stuff at the end of Ephesians, you need to have it clear in your mind what, what God really thinks about you. And because it says around that you are transformed by the renewing of your mind. You're not transformed by doing stuff. You're transformed by letting, letting the Word of God kind of, and the Holy Spirit change your thinking. And so if you think, you know, maybe that's something I want to look into, I would encourage you, take time out first on your own with your Bible, with a notebook, with the Holy Spirit and just say, is there anything, God, that you need me to just pray through process? You can do it on your own with God if you feel um, maybe you, you can't, you've got some stuff and you think I need a bit more you can meet with some of the guys, um, girls in Real Life Church. If you're not sure who, come and talk to me. And we'd love to pray through with you on whatever these issues is. So we're not talking about a big deal, but it's just good to stand with people and pray, get things dealt with, and then you can move on with God. And so I encourage you, take time to look at that. A book on this area, which my wife and I have both read and we found helpful, um, is called From Orphans to, Air, Air, Orphans to Heirs by a man named Mark Stibby. I don't know if you know Mark Stibby. He used to lead um, a big church um, in Chorleywood. Um, did lots of things, very sort of used powerfully man of God. But his story is he was adopted, which I didn't know until I read this. And he's used mightily by a man of God. And I think he's now left that church and runs a kind of a ministry. I think it's called the Father's Father's House Trust or something. And he he's big on this whole area of adoption because he's kind of he's lived through it, dealt with it, and it's sort of just a really helpful book about that area. And I've read it. I'm not adopted, and I found it very useful. And so that's just a you might want to read that about that area. But that's something I really want to hit as a church to make sure that we are all having a good relationship with the Heavenly Father. Other thing, keep reading through the book of Ephesians. We're going to keep going through it, keep reading it. There's only six chapters, one a day. You've got it knocked off in a week with a day off. I mean, keep reading it. There's so much in there. We're going to keep preaching through it um, and we're going to have a good time. We will stop there.